Cascadia News Now. I am Shamaya Contours. My co-host tonight is Liz Darrow. Welcome back, Liz. Thank you. And Dave Lingham and Tim Johnson will be back on a different show. But tonight we are super excited because we're going to have a good conversation about I-1639. That is the gun safety law. We have two guests in tonight. Uh, or today. And Lizzie Jelmseth is a local gun safety advocate who has a, a pretty powerful personal story that we will get into. And also Stephen Paolini, who is the campaign manager for 1639. It is the Safe Schools, Safe Communities campaign that he is the campaign manager of. He's worked on gun violence prevention issues, um, Stephen, you grew up in Orlando, and you were around when Pulse happened? I'd actually just moved up to Washington State about a week before the Pulse shooting happened. Uh, and so I had several high school classmates and, and uh, even college classmates that were in the nightclub at the time of the shooting. Uh, my family were really involved because it happened about 10 minutes from my house in Orlando. So I had just moved up to here. Holy cow. Uh have you been back? Yeah, uh, totally. Uh, my family still lives there. Um, my oldest brother and my mom and dad uh, all live in Orlando still. Uh, and there's actually a shooting uh, a week or two ago um, right at my high school, actually an attempted shooting. Uh, and luckily, luckily, only one person was injured. Um, but so that's a regular feature, I think, in, in that, that part of the, the country and the state in general. It's a huge shame that that community has to keep sort of reliving those kinds of tragedies for sure. Absolutely. There, there's not enough that we can say ab about the pain that people have when they've lost people over gun violence. I'm sure you've talked about it a lot. I don't know if, if you want to keep talking sure. about it. I'm happy to talk about it. Sure. Uh, I mean, you know, that moment for me, uh, I had grown up, uh, I was born in a rural community in southwest Michigan with about 300 people lived in that town, so it's real small. And I, I come from this um, culture of, of gun responsibility and gun ownership that I think for a, a long time in my life was very predominant. And I, I think I kind of bought into some of the stuff that the gun lobby likes to frequent, which is, you know, gun violence happens, there's nothing we can really do about it. And for me, that particular shooting was my moment of sort of enough is enough. And I think a, a lot of us uh, in this movement have a moment like that where we start to question and rethink, you know, what we what we believe and, and whether or not we're willing to be satisfied with the idea that this is going to continue to happen and happen, you know, constantly. And, you know, at the time, the Pulse shooting was the deadliest mass shooting in the United States. Um, it's since been uh, downgraded to, I think, the second deadliest. Um you know, and, and, um, I was a, at the time about 2000 miles away, uh, from Florida, from Orlando and, and sort of watched as my community and my family, you know, dealt with that. And my mom, who's actually a therapist, uh, volunteered for 72 hours straight treating the, wow. the victims and their families. And, um, and so many people were affected that day. You know, there were, uh, 43 people injured, 43 of my neighbors injured, uh, 53 people. Um, died. Actually, I'm sorry, it was flipped. 43 people died. 53 people were injured. Uh, and thousands of uh, more outside of that were, were impacted by that shooting and, and rippling out, you know, throughout the whole community, really. 
reverberating that that effect of gun violence. And so that's why I'm, I'm I got involved at the time. I actually uh, became an organizer for the first, uh, the second rather initiative that the Alliance for Gun Responsibility sponsored. And that was the Extreme Risk Protection Order. I know you were volunteering on that tell as well. Us, tell Let's us see. more what that is. Yeah, so it was an initiative that created what's called a risk, an extreme risk protection order. And essentially what that does is allows law enforcement and family members to petition a court with substantial evidence that somebody is actively threatening themselves or someone else. Uh, and if the court finds that substantial evidence is enough uh, and credible, then they can order up to a year mm-hmm. For that person's access to firearms to be removed. Uh, it's an incredibly important law to prevent suicide, domestic violence in particular as well, um, and many mass shootings. I mean, you know, Pulse shooting was a, a very strong example where really looking back on that now, they had several visits from the FBI. Law enforcement wanted to do something and to be able to raise a concern and go through due process. Uh, they knew that person had firearms. They knew they were making credible threats of violence against others, and they were just not able to do anything because under the law, that was a law-abiding gun owner, uh, and there was just nothing that their family could do, nothing that law enforcement could do. Uh, and so I was really excited. For me, that moment was sort of, uh, you know, like I say, the, the, the gun lobby is very invested in this idea of powerlessness, that there's nothing that we can do about gun violence. And I, I did believe that before Pulse. And then having worked on that law, and then in November, we won with 68% of the vote statewide, and I was with many volunteers like yourself, Lizzie, and, mm-hmm. and uh, advocates. And I, I didn't feel powerless anymore. You know, uh, I, I really and truly no longer believe what the gun lobby has to say about this issue for that reason. And and winning and being in that group of people is so huge. Stephen, um, before uh, we have another powerful story to tell as well, but I'm curious. You said you were raised in in a in a very gun rights sort yeah. of environment and that pulse was really your moment of sort of waking up and saying no more yeah when other things and i know you're you're definitely younger than i am but so i'm not sure but what sort of other mass shootings you remember or were exposed to sure. Yes, I'm I'm 22 years old. Okay. And one of the stats I like to use while talking about the campaign is that over 200,000 students in just my 22 years of life have been impacted by school shootings. So before Pulse, when you were raised in this environment and other shootings happened, mm-hmm. do you kind of remember what your thought process and your community's response yeah, was yeah. like? Well, you know, my, my, so, you know, just for some background, um, I come from a very religious family. My father's a pastor. My grandfather's a pastor. My uncle is a pastor. Um, my father's also a Vietnam War vet, uh, and was at one point an NRA safety instructor. My oldest brother is still an NRA safety instructor. And so coming from that background and that mindset, we sort of really reacted to every shooting with a kind of callous response, which is to say, oh, well, you know, this might be a really deadly mass shooting, but there's so few of them that doesn't really matter. Or, you know, oh, well, that's just a product of crime and there's nothing that we can really do about it. And that idea that there's nothing we can really do about it was something that, you know, every mass shooting that that happened, we would look back and say, oh, well, you know, oh, the gun laws aren't actually going to do anything. Oh, the definition of an assault rifle is not good enough. You know, oh, it... It, it regulates. And we own firearms. My family did. And I, I still own firearms. And um, you had shot. You've shot. Oh, yeah. Firearms. Oh, totally. Uh, and, and um, 
you know, still still a gun owner, still own uh, and a and a locked one thousand pound safe in Orlando, Florida. My family still has an AR fifteen, um, and so and for those of us who don't know what an AR fifteen yeah. is like me i know it's an automatic something That's yeah so it's a semi-automatic assault rifle it's actually the most common firearm in the country uh, there are the most fi- owned firearm is a, an assault rifle like an ar-15 uh, more than any handgun more than any other kind of rifle an ar-15 is the most owned gun wow. there are millions of them i had no idea so lizzie um boy i, I think that you're a great advocate i mean you they, being who you are and where you've come from. But sure. let's also bring in Lizzie Jones Seth, who is a local safety advocate. And um, you have a powerful story, very different than Stephen's. Um, well, Steve and I have a pretty similar background. I grew up in rural Montana. Um, I grew up in a family of hunters as well. Um, I'm a gun owner as well. But um when I was, I, I guess my story is different because I've actually been shot. When I was eight years old, um, my brother and I got in a fight over a cat. Mm-hmm. And he went and got a thirty thirty rifle to scare me. Um, and unfortunately, the gun was loaded and he shot me. Oh, um, a lot of times when people hear that story, they get that reaction, oh my gosh, that's just horrible. And they... It's kind of like driving by a car accident. You look at it and you see that and you go, oh my gosh, that's horrible. But immediately your mind starts also trying to figure mm-hmm. out how is that not me? How, what was wrong with them that that would mm-hmm. happen in their family and not happen to me? And I'll tell you, um, my family was spectacular. <laughs> we were a very average American family. Mm-hmm. My brother who shot me was, he still is one of the most precious people to me. The month before he shot me, he won a contest of the best (laughs) paper boy in the whole state of Montana. He was a responsible kid who got good grades and had lots of friends. Mm -hmm. My dad was a basketball coach, and that year we won the state championship. My mom was a stay-at-home mom who made sure we had breakfast at the table together every morning and dinner every night. We were average people. We did one thing wrong. We didn't store our guns properly. My parents thought since we took hunter safety, since they had threatened us with severe punishment if we ever handled a gun in an improper way or used it when not hunting, Mm. that we were going to be safe, that that gun would never be used to hurt anybody in our family. And a lot of people in this country believe that. And it's just not true. Yeah, I'm kind of blown away because I have like almost – the exact same background as y'all and having never met you before, it's kind of stunning. Awesome. My dad's a Vietnam veteran and a, and a pastor as well, just like Stevens. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I come from eastern Washington, really small town, and um, we grew up hunting. And I remember in the sixth grade, I lost one of my best friends to what was presumed an accident, may have been oh. suicide, not sure, with his own father's gun. <clears throat> wow. And after that, I think I was 11, maybe 12, I started pretending to be a bad shot because I didn't want to kill things anymore after losing my friend. So that was sort of my aha moment with guns. Um, I'm a little more extreme, probably no surprise <laughs> to Shamaya, but I would like a full-on assault rifle ban. Um, I think that 1639 is great. I'm happy to support it. Um, I think it's stunning that the assault rifle is the most owned gun in our country. 
And I think that when we look at other places where uh, gun violence death isn't as common, that is a major difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so as part of that growing debate, you know, it's like um, that saying, not making the good the enemy of the perfect. Mm-hmm. I think the initiative is good. But um, I Okay, don't... well, let's back up for a second, because you said you want a full-on assault ban, and we haven't really defined mm-hmm. what 1639 does. Okay. So um, the, the text is that it would require increased background checks, training, age limitations, waiting periods uh, for sales or delivery, semi-automatic assault ri- rifles, um, basically... Obviously, background checks increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, let's get into that. But the age limitation would yeah. mean that you couldn't buy a, any gun until you're 21. Is that? No. So so-, so right now in the state of Washington, you have to be 21 years old to purchase a revolver, any handgun for that matter. You actually have to go through a waiting period of up to five days, which serves as kind of a cooling off period as well as you know, allowing law enforcement to run the check and make sure that the check is complete before you you get access to the firearm. And there's a more local law enforcement background check. So instead of just the federal check, which sometimes can be delayed or not include some kinds of charges like domestic violence, uh, we've got laws here like extreme risk protection orders, which I mentioned earlier that other states don't have. And sometimes the delay and when that gets processed in the federal database is really long. So, all, so you have to do a local law enforcement check. You have to have five-day waiting period. You have to be 21 years old to own a handgun. Right now, you can enter any gun store in the state of Washington and at age 18, leave in two minutes with an AR-15, which is the standard what you would consider to be uh, universally an assault rifle. There's no background, there's no localized background check, just the federal one. You, there's no waiting period, and you can be 18 years old. Well, one of the things I want to clarify is that... That's current law, just so you Right, yeah. right. What I, what I want to clarify is that this is an expansion of background checks. And what right. you're saying, Stephen, is that this isn't background checks from zero checks. Right. This is making the checks we have more comprehensive. Right. And also making who can buy what more comprehensive. Yeah. So what this initiative would do is it would, we like to say, make sure that it is at least as hard to purchase a semi-automatic assault rifle like an AR-15 as it already is for a handgun. And so you'll continue to see those themes as you ask me more questions about the initiative. But in a lot of ways, what we're really just doing is, for with, for example, what you mentioned with the raising the age, we're raising the age to purchase an AR-15 from 18 to 21, which is already what's required for handguns. Now, there would still be some classes of firearms where you could be 18 years old to purchase them. For example, pump-action shotguns, bolt-action rifles, what normal folks would consider to be the primary firearms that we use for hunting or even for self-defense for that matter. So you could still be 18 and purchase those guns, but for semi-automatic assault rifles and handguns, which are all semi-automatic for the most part, you would have to be 21 years old. I am probably the least knowledgeable person in the room about guns and type of guns. And it's it's all fascinating and a little scary to me. But it seems to me, other than the concealable nature of handguns, that an assault rifle does more damage. Yeah. And so I'm finding it a little bizarre that in our <laughs> yeah. state that an 18-year-old cannot buy a handgun but can buy an assault rifle. However... I will bring up that one of the arguments against this initiative is sure. if you can go to war, sure. why can't you have, if you're an adult, if you're the age of majority, why can't you yeah. have that liberty if we're asking people to right. go and die for our country right. and use guns? Sure. 
Yeah. So, so the answer there really is number one, there's actually already exemptions for handguns where somebody that's active duty um, in, in the United States Army or Marines or any service for that matter can still own certain handguns if they're issued by uh, the Army. Uh, and the same would be true of semi-automatic assault rifles under the law. 1639. That's one of the great things about the way that we formulated the law, which is we're really taking what is already required for handguns and we're expanding it to assault rifles. So all of those little exemptions and the decades of experience that we have with implementing that kind of law is going to be applied very cleanly to uh, to semi-automatic assault rifles under 1639. And Liz Darrow, um, you sort of expressed that you are taking an even more in your in your absolute perfect world, all <laughs> guns would be thrown into the trash for the most part. Actually, no. that's not entirely okay, true. Um, you know, my dad is a Marine Vietnam veteran and his guns are very important to him. And I have some sympathy for that because he has some trauma mm -hmm. and he believes truly that he could protect himself should a uh, revolution ever happen. I don't think that's true now that we have drones and the government clearly has the power to do way more than they did when he was my age and when these beliefs were cemented in him when he was at war. So my sympathy goes as far as I believe I believe in his right to own firearms. I do not believe in the right to open carry, and I certainly don't believe in the right to uh, purchase an assault rifle when you're 18 years old. And, you know, and when we look at school shootings, it's predominantly mm -hmm. young white men. So yeah. those people for sure need to table it for at least five days. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, and it's also these yeah. young white men are getting um, legally procured weapons from their parents. So um I don't think necessarily that my perfect world would be entirely gun-free, but I think the ease with which people move around in the world with loaded weapons yeah. makes us less safe. And um, to be perfectly honest, it makes you know young men of color way less safe, even though they have the right to own guns. They don't have the same right to carry them mm. with freedom and safety that young white men do. So that's my primary um, philosophy around it. I personally don't own guns. It's not um, It's not a choice that I feel safe about as a woman. That makes me feel um, like I would be less safe if I had weapons in my home that someone could use against me. Mm -hmm. And Lizzie, um, yeah. do you want to just say like what your perfect world of guns and no guns might look like? My perfect world, actually, the thing that is the most important to me that affects me the most is that guns are stored properly. So um, I really, I don't, have a problem with any gun. I just want to make sure that the people that own these guns own them responsibly mm -hmm. and that they store them properly and that they have the mental capacity to be able to take on that responsibility. So um, that's basically where I am. Um, I support this initiative because all of those things are being hit on this, <laughs> on this initiative. And so I think this is a really good initiative to, um, to bring to the people and to get past and it'll make us all a lot safer. And you're a living example of what happens when people even think that they're doing the right thing and they're not. Exactly. Um, so the two things that pop into my head, uh, number one, I bought this gun. I could do whatever I want with my gun. Even if I had a background check, who the hell are you to come into my house and tell me how to store it is, sure. is one mm -hmm. thing that comes into my head. I don't even know how to address that because I think it's just a completely different way of seeing the world. But I want to acknowledge that some people yeah. see the world that way in terms of our rights and our privacy. The other, th well, let's just start, start with that. Okay. How, what, what thoughts come to anybody's head with that argument? Well, 
For me, I think that people have a strange perception about what safety is mm-hmm. in their own home. Um, I am a living example of the safety in your home that you think that you're creating with a gun in it mm-hmm. is false. Um, I know so many more people who have been accidentally shot in their own home than I know of anybody who's had someone break into their home and try to assault them. So I think the problem is, is that there's this perception that uh, we need to bring all of these guns into our house to make us safe. I, I did say that I am a gun owner and, and my husband and I own a couple of shotguns. We do hunt still. And, um, but they're locked in a safe and I don't feel any need to have that in my home for safety at all. Yeah, you know, and and one thing I want to add, because you said it perfectly from this perspective of values, right? And, you know, what I just want to clarify what the law actually does as well, because there's going to be some misinformation, I think, about uh, how the safe storage laws work. And so this law actually doesn't uh, say, here's how you have to store your gun, right? right? It doesn't say you have to use a safe. It doesn't say you have to use, you know, a trigger lock. There's actually some cities in Washington state that have passed laws like that, where they say you have to use this particular lock box, which I think can be a little weird and prescriptive and, Mm -hmm. you know, is a bit too much of failing on the one size fits all kind of solution. What this law says is something that I think we all need to be aware of as gun owners, which is with actions come consequences, right? You have to have personal responsibility you know, we like to say at the Alliance for Gun Responsibility, our slogan actually is balancing rights with responsibilities. And that's kind of the crucial, crucial fixture here. And what the law really does is it creates something called community endangerment with, with negligent storage of a firearm. And essentially, it says, if you are found to have stored your firearm negligently or not stored it at all, and you had a reasonable expectation that a child or a prohibited person, that's somebody that's not allowed to own a gun, has easy access to that firearm because of the fact you didn't store it and or you stored it negligently, then you can be held accountable for that only when it's used in the crime, right? Exactly. So this is a, I think it's actually yeah. a perfectly designed law because it doesn't go into your home and it doesn't tell you here's how you have to store your gun. It just says if you're going to store if you're going to have a firearm in your home, make sure it's out of the hands of children, out of the hands of people that aren't allowed to have them, and you're only going to get in trouble if it's then used in a crime. And it can scale up to be a pretty hefty consequence. So know that with your actions come at consequences. And if you're going to have a deadly firearm, that you got to be responsible with it. I think it's really well put together, obviously. I think it's beautiful. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> Speaking as someone who was shot in their home, it's, it's the perfect solution, I think. You're listening to Cascadia News Now. I'm Shamaya Contouris, and you just heard Lizzie Jilmseth and also Stephen Pellini. They're both with the Safe Schools, Safe Communities, and my co-host, Liz Darrow, is here as well. Um, the part that you were talking about, Stephen, I think is the criminalizing noncompliant storage yeah. upon unauthorized use. Yes. So it's not... So if somebody had an accident that happened, that's not going to fall under it. It's it's the non-authorized combined with the non-compliant. Yeah. Right. Well, so so it depends on what the accident is. I think potentially in your case, and I don't have the full details on it, but if, for example, you left a loaded shotgun on the table, you know, with it's it's loaded, safety's off, you know, it's completely negligent and you know, a child gains access to it and does commit an accidental shooting, then the parents, the legal gun owners, could be held accountable for that. And what's considered compliant storage? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's about that standard of negligence, which is to say that you have to be, 
It has to be proven by a prosecutor, go through a jury and a judge, that your negligent storage or lack of storage entirely combined with Mm -hmm. a reasonable expectation that a child or a prohibited person had access to that firearm caused caused the crime. crime. And now it can scale up, right? So brandishing a firearm in public, that's a crime. So that would be a gross misdemeanor for the law-abiding gun owner if if there's lack of storage led to somebody brandishing the firearm. Now, committing a mass shooting... That could, that could dial it all the way up to a Class C felony. Right. So, Liz Darrow, going back to your dad, because this is – I'm thinking about people who need to feel that this is protection. It's not for hunting. It's not for shooting bottles in the forest, regardless of my opinions about shooting bottles in the forest, which is another show. But for somebody <laughs> like your dad, this then would fit a criteria where he could still feel safe. Do you right. feel like – um, I do think so. I mean, I've known my dad a long time, obviously. And when we were kids, um, you could have easily grabbed any number of guns off mm-hmm. of the wall where they hung. And I think that was pretty typical in my area. And we took hunter safety and we took it pretty seriously. So I never would have for fear of my life because my dad's a pretty intense guy. Ever since his children have had children, um, the stipulation has always been, we will not come to your home unless your guns mm-hmm. are locked up. And he, and that has personally been enough for him. Um, and it's so ambiguous because it's impossible to say what's enough for anyone. He wants to see his grandkids. He has to put his guns away. Um, he did wear, uh, both of his 44s on his hips at my wedding. So he's, you know, um, he's a complicated guy. And I think this is a really complicated question. And when we look at ambiguity, it's really hard to say what to one person is negligence. I think it's negligent to have a loaded gun on your person at a wedding is someone else's feeling of feeling protected being out in the world. So I don't really know. um, I don't know where to draw that line. I'm not a legislator. (laughs) Thank goodness. (laughs) On 1639, that wouldn't be considered negligent. Right. For for its purposes. Yeah. But it was your wedding. And I I'm over it. This was like 12 years ago. But um, it is one of those things that occurs to me, you know, like, that for me would be a hard no, but he's my dad, you know, and I care about him. So I let it happen. So I think for a lot of people, and I do believe that he's a responsible, you know, cognitively sound person who would never, um, never put anybody's safety at risk beyond having loaded guns in public, mm-hmm. which is, which is iffy. But it does bring up for me too the question of, um, screening for mental illness, because mm-hmm. I think that that can be sometimes misguided. And I think we all know a lot of people who have diagnosed mental illnesses who have never killed anybody. So for me, I, I wish, um, that we could actually address the elephant yeah. in the room, which for me is toxic ma- masculinity, you know, having, um, not in the case necessarily of your 10 year old brother, He's but 16. Oh, 16. Well, that changes my image of the whole story. (laughs) In any case, um, I just, you know, this idea that people can and will get back at their loved ones and strangers because of the way that they've been raised in a culture that encourages them to be violent, I think is the biggest problem that can't be legislated. So I'd be interested to know, especially from from Stephen, um, how, you know, how we address that within the context of, okay, we are trying to pass this law. We need to open that conversation further, I think. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, so the most important thing to me, number one, in having this conversation is that we don't stigmatize mental illness. Mm -hmm. You know, by the numbers, somebody with a mental health diagnosis is much more likely to be the victim of a crime than they are to be the perpetrator of a crime. Mm -hmm. What we need to talk about is is access to firearms. I mean, we, we don't have... We have a mental illness problem in this country. Um, there's things that we can do to, to kind of hopefully dial that back. We need way more mental health resources and funding. And we've actually pushed for that in the, in the legislature as, as the Alliance for Gun Responsibility. Um, 
But what we really have in this problem is a gun density problem and an access to firearms problem. And, and more so than that, a dangerous access to firearms problem. We have, we have far too many guns with, that are unstored, you know, unsafe. We, we have far too easy access. Uh, to firearms. When, when an 18-year-old kid, you know, who's going through a time of crisis can then easily get access to any number of guns, take their own life or take somebody else's life, that's the problem right there, right? If we had waiting periods, we actually know in states with, with those kinds of waiting periods that we have a 17% reduction in suicide period, not suicide by gun, suicide. Wow. And, and the reason that's so crucial is something in the gun violence prevention world we talk about, which is means matter. Right. When you try to commit suicide or take your own life, rather, with a firearm, the lethality rate is 93 percent. When you try to take your own life with pills, the lethality rate is 2 percent. So means matter, access matters, stuff like the waiting periods in 1639 can prevent dangerous access. You are listening to KMRE 102.3 FM in Bellingham, 102.5 FM in Deming Van Zandt, KAVZ, and online at KMRE.org. And uh, KPNW-DB. I'm Shemai Contouris, and we have some fantastic people in the studio today talking about safe schools, safe communities. This is the initiative you are going to be voting on, and you are going to vote. <laughs> Listen to me Please. again. You are going to vote. I-1639, and this is the uh, firearm safety initiative is sort of what it's being referred to as. So we hit on a big... Um, sort of side issue in terms of mental health. I'm so glad, Stephen, that you brought up that most people who live with mental health issues are oh. targets yeah. of violence. We cannot say this enough. And um, and not just targets of harassment, but people ha- have been murdered in this state by guns. Yeah, People with mental health issues. It's happened over and over again. It's happened. Um, police have murdered people and not police have murdered people. That being said, and that being acknowledged, I think there's a huge issue about how, what is this range of mental health and how, how does somebody determine if somebody is not supposed to have a gun, is not fit to have a gun because we all have some sort of mental health issue. Right. So how, how do you draw the line and does this initiative even address that? So it addresses it in one way and one way only, which is there's only one kind of health record that prohibits you in the state of Washington. Actually, it's a kind of expansion. But, you know, there's one kind of health record in the state of Washington that prohibits you from purchasing a firearm, and that is a current involuntary commitment. So if somebody is currently involuntarily committed for 72 hours or up to 17 days, then you can be prohibited from purchasing a firearm. If you're committed for 17 days in a row, that record stays until a judge clears you. And, and the only other way in addition to that is if a judge, through very substantial evidence, is able to prove that you, you know, don't have enough mental sort of capacity. It's, has not, there are no laws right now that say because of a diagnosis, then you can be prevented from having access to a firearm. That is not something that Initiative 1639 does at all, and it's not something that any Washington state law does at all. The only thing Initiative 1639 addresses is what's, you know, already allowed for handguns, but isn't allowed for AR-15s, which is if somebody is currently involuntarily committed in a mental health institution, they cannot buy a handgun. They're not checked when they buy an AR-15. That, oh. Right. So, you know, <laughs> that's part of what I referred to earlier as the local law enforcement background check. There is a, a local form that asks that question. 
and says, will you allow us to check the medical records at the DSHS to determine if you are currently involuntarily committed at a mental health institution? That question is asked for handguns, is not asked for AR-15s. And so that's what 1639 would address. It's the only thing it changes. So I'm curious, Stephen, in the case of Pulse, what would be the um, parts of 1639 that would have helped prevent that tragedy? Yeah, I think the waiting periods would have been huge, you know, 10-day waiting period. Um, I, I think going back to the extremist protection order, that law right there in my mind would absolutely mm-hmm. have been able to stop um, the Pulse shooting. Um you know, it'd be interesting to, to look at the safe storage firearms. I can't remember exactly. I believe he legally uh, purchased the firearm um, in that case and purchased a number of them. So and really only the waiting periods would have changed. And maybe some of the background checks. I don't know his his background history. but Oh, well, actually, there's a there's a requirement to, to have basic training within the last five years. And he could easily have gotten that basic training. But I think you know, this is sort of speculation, but being such an antisocial personality, that actually could have been a prohibitive step. So an issue of 1639 would require proof of basic training within the last five years before purchasing an assault rifle. So that combined with the waiting periods could have been prohibited enough uh, to stop him from, from committing that shooting. You know, as I'm sitting here and listening to everyone, I'm, we can always see where the laws failed us, but we can't see when the, fa- when the laws worked because... Yeah the shooting was prevented. And so it's hard sometimes to talk about these laws and say, well, they're working because we can't actually see the numbers of that. We can only see the numbers of when it failed. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think we just always have to keep in our mind that these laws are preventing tragedies. And we just don't know every day that could be happening every single day. I agree. Yeah. And, I mean, and I'm, I'm, yeah, as it, so I just want to also go back to one thing about, you know, um, we were talking about the safe storage and all of that. And I get a lot from people. They say, well, would you have wanted your parents to be arrested? Because my, my parents negligently stored a firearm. My brother took it in a fight and he shot me. And I always come back with, if there would have been a law, my parents would have followed it. Right. And I would have not been shot. So please pass the law. <laughs> I wish no other child mm-hmm. had to go through what I've gone through. So. Absolutely. I think that is spot on. And I also, I mean, I, I assume it's illegal already to bring that many firearms into a hotel room. I don't know that. But yeah. I mean, it's like there are some laws that that guy was just going to break anyway. But that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that I don't think that there will be millions of people who follow the laws and that will prevent millions of tragedies. I mean, that's just, it's obvious. Yeah, that's just how we are as a society. Right. Most of us follow laws. Well, Lizzie and Liz, I think you both make excellent points. And thank you for bringing that up. I That's, what a pointed question. You know, would you have wanted your parents to be arrested? And and, um, I think that this is hitting an area, this initiative that things fall through the cracks because people aren't as educated as they could be. And it is mm-hmm. about education. Uh, we're talking a lot about Pulse, but we just passed the anniversary of Las Vegas as well. Yeah. And I want to acknowledge, especially you just mentioned hotels, that um, hopefully this kind of legislation would prevent uh, or at least reduce, maybe if not absolute prevent. Because Liz Darrow, you said um, it's not going to stop 
everything, right? And one of the questions that people have is, well, I can get a I can get a firearm illegally. And if the if my neighbor could get a fire alarm a, a fire firearm illegally and they're going to be negligent, why should I follow the rules? And do the rules even help? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's always again, it's always hard to speculate on on specific shootings. Um but every step that we can take uh, you know, even something as simple as requiring basic safety training within the last yeah. five years. And if you've ever taken one of those courses, I mean, it's if you have a concealed pistol license and all and all odds, you probably have. In Florida, that's actually required. Uh, Say that again. In Florida, you, if you're going to get a concealed pistol license, you have to have proof of basic training within the last five years. Uh, and the the training is it's real basic. It's here's how you check to make sure that there's not a round in the gun. Here's how you reload the gun. Here's how you make sure the safety's on. Here's how you properly store it. Even something that simple is prohibitive to, to some gun, you know, criminals. It's that check of having to go in person, right. take an hour long training, provide that proof of purchase. You know, the 10 day waiting period. It might not. I mean, well, OK, well, a criminal can wait 10 days. Yeah. Well, actually, in states where cooling down periods like that exist, 10 percent less homicides, 17 percent less um, suicides overall. Right. You know, and, and states with the safe storage laws, 24% less accidental shootings. I mean, so each of these things, while it might seem like, oh, well, you know, a, a criminal, if they really wanted to, could, could go out and break the law and find a gun anyway. Well, actually, if you're, if everyone's storing their gun pro- properly, it's going to be harder for them to find a gun illegally. Exactly. We're going to cut down on, on the black market for firearms. And if we're requiring all these different things, then it actually is prohibitive. The number of people with concealed pistol licenses that commit crimes is extremely low. And that's not because it's hard to get one. It's because it's prohibitive to go out and do it. And again, there's there are always people, and I think about uh, people who have who have been former military or police officers, and, and that crime of passion might happen. Yeah. But I think that there is a huge number, and, and you your statistics bear that out. I'm terrified of guns. I've shot guns twice in my life. I did the safety thing. Um, let me give a little plug for uh, the Whatcom County. The gun safety training was amazing. And yeah. the people who do it, it, it's amazing. And it's a county program. And I yeah. and I kind of did it with my wife on a dare. I'm really glad I went through it. But I'm that person, man. If a car alarm went off, I might not kill a person, but I would shoot the hell out of that car. Like, I have it in me to be I know you talk about white male violence, but it's not just white. Like I, there have been times where I absolutely am in touch with the part of me that should not own a gun, and <laughs> I think that you're. I think you're absolutely right, and I feel like we're all revolving around this point that it is about reducing crime. It is about increasing safety and reducing crime. I think any reduction to access is a positive thing. And especially if we look at, I mean, especially domestic violence, you know, thinking about those people who, and that's a tricky one too, because there's always the first time and you're still allowed to do it the first time. But I mean, I just, I think it's a no brainer that, Overall, what do you mean? You're, well, I mean, like if you have a to if you have what? a totally clean record and you um, and 1639 passes and you follow all the background checks and waiting period, that doesn't mean that you then are not going to become an abuser or already are now an abuser who has access who has that op- option now. But I do think these you know theoretical possibilities still for me I'm like well that's unfortunate. But 
any reduction to access is a positive thing, especially for women and people of color and mm -hmm. children. I mean, it just is going to make our schools safer, for example. That's one place where um, when my son was in high school, they had a man on campus with a gun and a lockdown. And it terrifies me. You know, it's just like I don't even want... And, and now he's he's moved away from home and I'm just feeling like and to be fair, he's a white middle class guy. So he is the safest you can be in this country. It still does not protect him from being in a movie theater or a school where somebody's got access to an automatic rifle. So it's uh, I mean, the risk is just obvious and ever present. So anything that makes it a little bit harder for whatever reason, these people are accessing AR-15s and becoming monsters with them. <laughs> I'm like, I'm ready for whatever buffer you can put up to keep my my kids or their inner safe. monsters unleashed right right yeah so a couple things i just want to take a second it's not really germane to the conversation but when we talk about access and my own issues about guns and whether or not people should have them has evolved a lot partly because of people of color and the um, black people not feeling safe, Native Americans not feeling safe, but there's also the issue of LGBTQ people. Mm -hmm. And, and in this county, people that I know have been threatened, both, actually both people of color and, and people who I'll just say queer people who have been threatened because of who they are. Mm -hmm. And so my position on guns has evolved a lot. Mm -hmm. Even if I might completely honestly like skew to the side of let's throw them all away like Australia did and, and, and let's become free, but realistically and who we are and, and like people like your father, Liz, like, but people who have been targeted, people who are at risk for being beaten and murdered in this country, that's a whole other issue. I think that's, um, you know, it's 100% relevant. But, you know, like we talked about earlier, you are not safer as a black man with a gun from yeah. police violence. You know, you know, I, I wouldn't think as a queer person that you would be safer with a gun because a lot of those violent crimes don't even involve guns, you know. So I just think, I mean, I don't know. I can't speak as either a person of color or a queer person because I'm a cis white woman. But I just I don't know that um, restricting access you know, if you're a law-abiding queer person, you should still be able to, under under this initiative, have access um, to your safety. I would presume that having a concealed handgun um, permit would make a person feel more safe because being out in public with an AR-15 is not not really an option for your safety <laughs> anyway. But, um, I, you know, as far as that question goes, I've just become aware um, because of police brutality that you are just mm. less safe anyway. And that's on all of us. Well, we can anecdotally parse, you know, situation <laughs> after situation. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, we've had shows about police brutality. We will continue to have shows about police brutality. But the instances that I know where queer people were attacked were not directly by police and were situations where people were approaching their own property mm -hmm. and threatened yeah, um, or scary. coming out of rumors. But, you know, particularly when people are in their own homes and somebody is is very visibly queer and people know it, mm -hmm. you know. So, again, that's mm -hmm. there's a lot of gray areas. And my feeling is if people can have guns safely and go through background checks, that, that they should. Um, one thing I want to return to with both you, Lizzie, and Stephen, about your backgrounds, about being from Montana and Florida, respectively, or Michigan, I guess. Michigan and, and Florida, Florida. Florida. Yeah, But being in these, in, in places that are very gun culture, very like, this is yeah. our rights. How are you both out in the field talking to people 
who are not initially in favor of this initiative? What does that look like? I have a lot of personal conversations with people I have my entire life from the time I was shot. I, I have a lot of uh, just one-on-one conversations with people, getting to the core of what their fears are, why they feel like they need to have a protective gun or a gun in their home at all. I mean, I talk to them about uh, my situation. And um, it's something I'm really comfortable with because I've done it forever. This has been the reality of my life forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I love those conversations. Some of them aren't, um, they don't go the way I would want it. Most of the time they do, though. People, you know, I think if you can just slow somebody down and talk to them for a little while in a reasonable way, people listen, and it's it's always pretty positive. Yeah. 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 I mean, I stood in line to um, to in Olympia a couple of years ago to testify, yeah. and I got in line, and there testify was testify in what? Um, I was testifying. I go to Olympia testify <laughs> a lot for gun violence. Um, reduction stuff. So yeah. I, I don't remember exactly which shit, what this was, but I stood in line behind a guy. And when I walked up, he turned around to me and he looked at me and he said, Oh, I can tell just by looking at you, you have a sad ass story. Ugh. Oh, can I say that on the radio? But yes. anyway, ass, um, ass is okay. Sad and, ass stories and, and I said, okay. And so I got up and I spoke. And when I came out, he was waiting for me in the hallway. And I had a little bit of a nervousness. And he came up and he shook my hand. I cry every time I talk about this because it's so moving. But he said, you changed me. He said, you didn't have a sad story. He said, you had powerful testimony. And you changed my life. And that I carry that with me every day in every conversation that I have. Because you'd never know where anybody is in any moment and what they're going to hear. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I've had, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think we've been down to the, in Olympia several times together, yeah. um, um, testifying on various policies, some of which has been the safe storage law, which has yeah. been in the legislature since 1999. It was the first time it was ever sponsored. And Ruth Kagey, the actual, Ruth Kagey, the person that hero. sponsored it. Yeah, she retired this year. I know. Who is Ruth Kagey? Uh, she's a state representative uh, in uh, Edmonds, Muckleteo area, and she was the prime sponsor for uh, the what is now the safe storage law in initiative 1639, but for a long time was referred to as dangerous access prevention. Um, and she sponsored that since 1999. Uh, anyway, so, you know, and she unfortunately she retired this year, uh, but we're glad we can we can put this policy into action with the initiative. Um, but, you know, you and I have been down in, in, in those settings and and. There's always a couple of folks that will start out in a real oppositional frame because they think that you're going to be, you know, attacking them and attacking the Second Amendment, all this kind of stuff. And afterwards, they'll come up to you and they'll say, you know, we, you and I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, I got an email blast from the NRA. I thought I'd show up because they said this was assaulting my Second Amendment rights. And then now that I'm here and I've listened to it, that's just not the case. Uh, one of the other, you know, great pleasures of, of my job uh, is that I just got back from a statewide campaign tour. And we went to and knocked on doors with groups of activists and volunteers like yourself, Lizzie, um, all across the state. I was in Vancouver and Olympia and Tacoma and Yakima and Spokane and Squim and Bellingham last weekend and Mill Creek uh, this weekend. Uh, and I've had the chance and the pleasure to knock on doors and talk to voters at their doorsteps all across the state of Washington. Everywhere I go and I talk to some press, they always say, oh, well, do, do you think you have an uphill battle here? No, I have the same challenge that I do everywhere, which is... I got to get the information out there. I got to tell people what the initiative is. I got to have the chance to have an honest conversation with somebody 
the more personal, the better. And if I can do that, everyone I know supports it. Everyone I've had the pleasure to talk to and that would give me the time of day to, to speak with them will support the initiative. That's the challenge. There's no place in the state of Washington, no matter how rural, that if they know what the initiative really does, I think I got way more than a 50-50 shot at them supporting me. I think I got 90 to 10 on them supporting me and the initiative. I think the uphill battle is the gun lobby and the money that's being dumped into the misinformation campaigns, you know, and that's always the challenge um, when you're just trying to get people the factual information, but they've already been reached by, you know, fake news or, (laughs) if you will, media that is um, really powerful because of all the money that's in it, you know, and people are so susceptible to, well, I heard this or I saw this on TV or whatever. Um, But that's why I think doorbelling is so powerful. And I'm grateful to you all for doing that. Yeah, one one quick stat on that, that the NRA actually spends more money here directly to candidates than in any state in the country. So it wow. is, it's a real uphill you know, battle from that perspective and that they spend so much money here uh, trying to get legislators not to support common sense stuff, trying to convince them that their constituents don't support it. Uh, and we've been able to sort of crack away at that and pick away at that. Um, but it is that's the uphill battle. It's, it's the money, it's the history that the NRA has here. And um, it's the challenge to to combat their misinformation. And they've said so many different lies about the initiative. And, you know, I was talking to somebody literally in Whatcom County and they said, oh, this is going to ban karate. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> karate? Yeah. They said Would, it was going to ban. they have a logical follow up They for said that? that it was going to, they had heard from the NRA that it was going to ban self-defense. And so they immediately drew that out to all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's, it's real. The tagline against... This initiative by the NRA is don't criminalize self-defense. This has nothing to do with that. And it, and it will not stop anybody from defending themselves. Right. And, you know, misinformation is, is now the way, the American way of, of campaigns, yeah. um, candidate and initiative. This is particularly frustrating. But let's just talk about the big red angry elephant in the room, which is the NRA. Yeah. First of all, I, I have my own feelings about why I think that they're putting so much money into this state, but I'd like to hear other people talk about why you think Washington State is literally a target. I I'm, I have no idea. Okay. I just, I have a, you know, when I got shot, my grandmother had a, an NRA bumper sticker on her car. It was back in the day when, you know, if you outlaw guns, only outlaws will have guns. That was 1972. They have been working this crowd for a really yeah, long time. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's the reality I think of it. Actually, Washington State is is among the leading states in the country with fi- in terms of firearm ownership. There's a lot of gun ownership in the state of Washington, and because of that, I think the NRA, just historically speaking, you know, targets that kind of state and tries to build their brand from that kind of state. Um, you know, that's been they're a different organization now than they were 30 years ago when my father was a member or when my oldest brother was really actively a safety instructor. Um, they were, they used to be, and I, by the way, I don't have any problem with NRA members at all. I actually had a group of, of 20 NRA members, former and current in a room with me in, uh, at a library in Squim just a week ago. And we had a great conversation and they are going to all vote for initiative 1639. So I don't have a problem with the membership. I think the organization has shifted Mm -hmm. and when people realize and really look into it and they see how the organization has changed and they stop supporting it. But that's a change that needs to happen because historically in the state of Washington, if you were a gun owner, you were an NRA member, mm-hmm. and you believed what they said. Uh, and unfortunately, I think there's some real poignant ways in which the NRA has stopped representing gun owners and started really representing gun dealerships 
and the gun industry at large. So capitalism. Yeah. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it. But but the other thing, so Washington State, fiercely blue, but fiercely independent. Like you said, more firearms here. And partly I think that's our independent streak, us in Alaska. But but I think that that's an angle that that they think that they have. But when you're referring to how the NRA organization has changed, they used to support gun safety laws. Dangerous Mm -hmm. access prevention. This safe storage law used to be on their policy agenda. Hmm. That's fascinating. Now now it's criminalizing self-defense. But this, this piece of policy... 30 years ago, was on their policy agenda in D.C. Well, and it's interesting that <laughs> technically we are a fiercely blue state, but, you know, um, Western Washington is very small compared to where I come from geographically, you know, just land mass wise. Yeah. Um, in all of southern and eastern Washington, um, people that I have encountered and grown up with are so conservative and so terrified of the west side of the state because there is this prevalent belief that we are coming to take your guns and we're all queer and we're all fascists. I mean, it's like there is something going on politically in eastern Washington that has always been there. Um, Same is true in the south of the state. And I think it's really easy for an organization like the NRA to capitalize on that because um, it's, uh, you know, because it's always been there, like just that um, there's kind of like this weird competitive East versus West thing. Um, that's a little bit scary, honestly, whenever I go home, I'm immediately aware if I get out of my car anywhere, you know, East of the mountains, I'm like, well, this is a different scene. You know, I can't wear my, my typical things without getting harassed. And there, there is still a big bro gun culture there. So I think it's probably easy to um, get that membership worked up. Yeah. I went to school in Cheney. I hear yeah. I lived in Spokane, um, and and it's representative, and we don't have time, but it's representative of what's happening in this country. Yeah. It's representative mm-hmm. of the divisiveness, and another thing that we don't have a whole mess of time to get into because we're kind of coming into the final stretch is we didn't talk about the Second Amendment and how, um, but it plays into the NRA and the NRA as the organization is now plays into the, um, the I don't say romance, but the ideals of the Second Amendment and, and the ideals of independence and Americans being free. Yeah. Right? And and I'm wondering if um, the two of you who have been in, in the campaign, if he, has that come up, that issue, or the Second Amendment, has it come up at all? You know, I was at our press stop in our community event out in Vancouver, actually. Uh, we had... Uh, it was a really cool, cool speaker lineup. Uh, we had a guy who was running out there for state representative, Chris Bobbin, and he's a twice in Iraq war uh, veteran. Um, and we also had a, had a kid uh, who was actually a local organizer down there. He was uh, 19 years old and was uh, just recently commissioned as a lieutenant in the U.S. Marines. So mm-hmm. he's sort of an intergenerational veteran, uh, new, newly commissioned, uh, officer. And they were talking about the ethos behind why they find it very consistent to both, you know, volunteer overseas, to go overseas in a time where, you know, that's not the most popular thing in the world. Uh, and to do for all the things you just said, protecting rights, making sure that America is free, you know, keeping their community safe. That's why they, they deployed, but they also shared, that's why they're working on this initiative. Right. And in many ways, um, you know, it's just, it's so crucial to remember, like, we have this American ethos that we should be the best country in the world, and we should be the safest country in the world, and that uh, no American children, you know, should have to deal with the kind of, you know, gun violence that we're, that we're facing right now. And I was talking to a high school leader in Vancouver, and, and she was saying, you know, they, they used to, my mom says that when she was in school, they taught their, um, you know, drop and roll, 
Now they oh, teach yeah. me, you know, run, hide, and fight. Wow. You know, stop, drop, and roll, run, hide, and fight. You know, so that's that's the the shift in the language. You know, <laughs> 200,000 students in 20 years have been impacted by gun violence. I mean, that's not American exceptionalism. That's not what we fight for. Um, that's a, that's, yeah. So we have to wrap it up. I am so happy and honored that you have all joined me today because this has been a really in-depth conversation and I love everything that everyone had to say. I just want to give you a chance, people um, who want to know more about Safe Schools, Safe Communities and I-1639. Of course, there is the Washington State voter pamphlet, which of course you'll look at before you go out and vote. <laughs> but if people want to know more about Safe Schools, Safe Communities, what can they do? Yeah. So we, uh, our website, obviously, yes on 1639.org. You can find out all of the information right there. You can also Facebook and Twitter and all of the social medias. Uh, it's the same thing. Yes on 1639. Uh, we'll get you to a number of awesome uh, volunteer opportunities, donation opportunities, that kind of thing. We will be here in this district, in the 42nd Legislative District out here in Whatcom County. We will be canvassing every week, every weekend. So there will be at least two days during the week that you can volunteer and at least two days on the weekend that you can volunteer. Fantastic. Stephen Paulini, the campaign manager for Yes on 1639, Lizzie Jelmseth, and Liz Darrow have joined me tonight on, or today on Cascadia News Now. I'm Shamaya Contours. Huge, huge debts of gratitude and love to our engineer, Brooks Collins. Thank you, Brooks. Thanks, Ooh. Brooks. Woo! And you have been listening to Cascadia News Now. You can find us on the Facebooks um, or just Google Cascadia News Now. And um, you've been listening to KMRE 102.3 FM in Bellingham, 102.5 KAVZ in Deming and Van Zandt. KPNW-DB online and KMRE.org online. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>